Welcome back to Repod, the University of Salford's research podcast. My name is Andy Meir, and I'm delighted to be hosting a colleague from the School of Science, Engineering and Environment today, Professor Sunil Vadera, who's been at the university since 1979 with a few breaks in between, but leading computer science, artificial intelligence, data science and all things digital. Enjoy. Hello, Sunil. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Well, it's great to have you with us, not least of which is because the areas that you're researching are absolutely fascinating. And I'm a bit really enjoyed getting to know your research over the last few years because you cover so many areas. Yeah, it's my 39th, uh, it's my 40th year this year, actually. Wow. And, uh, 42nd, if you count my undergraduate studies. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of privileged to join Salford in 79 as an undergraduate on the Joint Honours in Science course to study uh, computing and uh, mathematics. A little bit of physics as well. So in, in those days, you kind of jack of all trades, uh, which was ideal for me because I had so many interests as a, as a kind of young young person. Interested yeah, and in... it must have been, I mean, computer science back then must have been a very different world. I imagine that it was quite a sort of, well, still is, of course, but a pioneering field. There probably weren't that many degrees that were doing this. Absolutely. No, they, it was, it was uh, uh, looking back, it was uh, a time when you wrote, programs by uh, punching holes in cards and then feeding those cards <laughs> into a card reader and, and waiting for uh, a system in the center to come back and tell you that you missed a comma out somewhere or a full stop after <laughs> half an hour. So you soon learned not to make mistakes and uh, you soon learned the value of uh, trying to get your programs right in the first place. I bet you do. And I guess going back all that way, what was your entry into sort of thinking about computer science as a career? Can you remember a point at which you thought computing is the future and you wanted to be part of that world? Yes, I think I think I think it, it, my experiences at Salford have influenced me a lot. And Salford being a technological university was one of the reasons I chose it in the first place, rather than to go elsewhere. And, and I recall in the second year of my studies, because it was a, a joint program, you had to study computing as well as mathematics. I was fortunate to have some fantastic tutors, and both on the mathematics side and the computing side. Uh, but one of the things I noticed was that there was, there was a, a, a gap in terms of the mathematics material was always nicely uh, presented in terms of the rationale for it, the theory behind it. Whereas the computing in those days was uh, basically you hacked together a program and if you're good at a particular programming language, then that was great. And in those days, it used to be Algol 60 and then Pascal. And then uh, I don't know if people know, but Salford used to be famous for Fortran 77. We had uh, one of the earliest Fortran 77 compilers that was sold throughout the world. And uh, Salford was well known for, for that activity. So at that point, I was really keen to understand how to computer science could be a science it could be more systematic and i recall um, in the second year you had to do a dissertation in mathematics so my dissertation is very much looking at the relationship between uh, developing systems and the theory behind those systems so i spent quite a bit of time looking at uh, how you could develop uh, computer programs that were correct uh, but using mathematics to make sure they were correct and that was the kind of earlier career trajectory I had was 
uh, trying to uh, understand how you could design systems, whether it's uh, in the same way you usually design bridges so that if you go over a bridge, it doesn't fall over. Whereas in those days, uh, there were issues with, as they are today, with, with bugs in programs. Uh, how do you develop systems that are safe, whether they're safety-related or safety-critical systems? And at the time, I suppose, I mean, so much has changed in computer science. It feels like computing is so present in our lives today with social media, with artificial intelligence, with any number of industries who are increasingly dependent on the computing industry and the gains that are made there. And it's, uh, I, I guess, in some respects, it must feel like computer science really is at the heart of, of a lot of knowledge creation today. Yes, yeah, so so that's that's an interesting view that, that it, you know it's obviously ubiquitous and it's it's everywhere, but the the people driving those innovations are, are split into two parts really: those that that have the capability, the resources to develop those systems, and then the user groups that tend to use those, pay for those services, and and sometimes um, are lulled into false sense of security about. Uh, how those systems uh, and the data that's provided is used. Uh, it, 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 it really is a, a huge gap between the what I would call the practitioners and the users. And there's the other side, which has always influenced uh, me, is to close the gap between the theory and application of AI. So I've really been uh, working hard on trying to close the gap between the theory of AI and the application of it, and, and also seeing how how the practice could be improved uh, and could influence the theory. So both both sides of the theory practice kind of relationship is uh, is fascinating. And I think it's it's the sort of subject, uh, particularly with artificial intelligence, where people have an idea of what it involves and what it may be doing to society and what impact it's having. But when you look back on the history of, of computer science, was there a period where sort of artificial intelligence suddenly sort of became a really important area or methodology or way of thinking about designing computers? Or has it always sort of been present in the history of computer science, would you say? It's always been there since the days mm. of Turing, of course. And yeah. Of course, the, there have been different waves, different waves of optimism. They were probably in the third third wave. I recall the, the first wave was mainly around neural networks. And uh, and that way was squashed by uh, uh, observation that simple neurons didn't work for simple problems. Uh, a famous paper by Papat and Minsky uh, condemned uh, AI to, uh, to, to the backwaters for many years in the 70s. And then there was a second wave where really I, I got really interested in, in what's known as the expert systems era. Uh, and that, that was driven by... Uh, something called the fifth generation program that the Japanese uh, uh, created. And they had ambitions of creating intelligent machines uh, based on logic. And from that, there was a programming language called Prolog, uh, standing for programming in logic, uh, which we introduced at Salford in the 80s as, as, as a core part of the curriculum. It's still a core to this day. But anyway, the, the Japanese amb ambitions meant that the UK, the, the States, and Europe followed uh, with similar ambitions. In the UK, there was something called the Alvi, Alvi Project. Uh, and the Alvi Project tried to do something slightly different in terms of the expert systems era. At Salford, we, 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 we engaged in that uh, drive, and we had various systems. I recall um, 
at the time Peter Brandon joined Salford. Uh, Peter, of course, famous for driving research at Salford in the 80s and 90s, uh, getting built environment to five-star rating. Uh, and so, so Peter, I think, initiated uh, something called LC, which was an expert system for the construction sector. Uh, I'm just trying to remember the kind of people involved. Andrew Basden. Andrew Basden was one of the RAs or research fellows on that project. And Graham Cooper, who was uh, some of colleagues will know, was also on that project. Uh, I myself was involved in something called Dust Expert, which was um, for the health and safety executives. So just to give you a flavor of Salford and of the kind of work we did in, in those days, we used to have something called Salford University Business Services Limited. And that was our commercial arm. It was one of the first commercial arms that we had. And um, and that, that the, the health and safety executive were interested in reducing the number of explosions in, in the chemical process industry. And they're called dust explosions, but they include things like flour mills, where you can get a little spark in the vessels, and that kind of results in an explosion. Kind of, kind of larger, larger scale things um, like exothermic reactions. So some people may have heard of the incident in Bhopal in India, mm -hmm. where there was an exothermic reaction, uh, I think, uh, in making batteries. And lots of people died and there are similar incidents that happened with small explosions so they were interested in in uh, developing an advisory system that would reduce the number of explosions that happened and they came to Salford through this company called subsol and subsol approached me and said can we develop an expert system that would help them of course being a young researcher i said of course i can <laughs> <laughs> and set off we set off trying to do this uh, and they they engaged uh, 30 companies from something called the British Materials Handling Board as part of the project partners to fund it as a feasibility study, in, uh, which lasted about a year. And in that year, we, we developed a prototype. And uh, to our astonishment, the British Materials Handling Board said, that's great. Uh, it was meant to be internal, but can we not do this on a bigger scale and start releasing it uh, to, to everybody uh, and commercialise it? At which point I got very nervous because these were obviously... Uh, safety incidents, something goes wrong, somebody dies, you know, kind of system. Yeah. And they said, don't worry, we, we can do this. We'll we'll give you some money for two years and you can develop another better prototype than the one you've got. We did that. And at the end of it, they put it through some, they wanted to release it, at which point I, I got very nervous indeed. Uh, luckily for us, uh, the health and safety executive legal department uh, said no way you can't release this this is developed by a university there's no quality assurance around it if something goes wrong we've had it so they then appointed um, Lloyd's register to develop a specification and from that uh, they appointed a company called Adelard uh, which by pure chance and by pure luck um, Adelard's uh, developers uh, included a, a certain a person who was my internal examiner for my PhD on the theoretical work I did at Manchester for my PhD. So all of a sudden, the system we were developing was going to be developed using some of the material on the theoretical mathematics or the logic that was used. And that system went live and it was marketed by the Institute of Chemical Engineers. So again, kind of highlighting that Salford has been one of these institutions that wanted to develop systems that were going to be used in practice and then the way theory and practice can come together which is for me was very exciting to do 
which which I'm sure remains a thread in, in everything that you do still. But I want to just reflect again a bit on that period of development, because, of course, I mean, I was at university when the Internet or the World Wide Web really became a big thing. I remember the sort of transition into having email. And I suppose it has become such a focal point of attention publicly, as you mentioned earlier, partly around user awareness of what is happening within platforms, people understanding issues about their privacy. And, and yet, of course, with Sir Tim Berners-Lee's famous quote, this is for everyone, the computer revolution was really a, a period whereby we would sort of take greater ownership of, of, of the means of production, of control of our lives. And yet uh, we find ourselves increasingly sort of subject to, to technology. How do you sort of see things playing out technologically in terms of computer science? Do you, are you sort of optimistic about its capacity to make positive change for the future or are you like Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking's anxious about AI and and the future? Yeah I think throughout my career I've kind of seen both sides where where I've been fortunate enough to develop what I'm called small scale systems that then take off so they can be quite simple systems and the simple systems then get used in practice so an example would be the work we did with Carl Dayton many years ago. Uh, we had a knowledge transfer partnership um, in, in the early, I think it was 2011, where we developed a, a system for subprime lending, so assessing risk when lending, uh, lending to people who can't afford uh, loans or not given loans by banks. So that's an example where, where if you'd applied the kind of concerns that you've got today mm. you probably wouldn't have started doing it at, at Salford you would have kind of been scared off trying to assess uh, people in those positions and that's why banks avoid using uh, lending to them in the first place but then you end up with people who are kind of excluded financially and then end up in a worse position than they should have, should do if there was support so we, we embarked on it we kind of use data to learn whether people are likely to return the loans that were given to them. And, and to our surprise, we were able to do this because banks at that time weren't able to do it. So that's an example that, you know, you, you think about the difference it made to East Lang's money line, uh, that combination of the social sciences coming together with the technologists, uh, the computer scientists to develop a system that aids people who were financially excluded before you know, they grew from something like two outlets, one in Burnley and Blackburn, to 14 outlets. And I recall going to the new new the new office at Salford uh, City Centre and uh, sitting there and watching watching uh, people coming for loans, really being uh, overwhelmed by the support they received, the difference it made. So I, I see I see similar kind of things in the use of AI, where you you know you you, you get innovation happening that wasn't there previously. But then you've got the other side that you've got to take care. So there are lots of examples, of course, you know, you you, you kind of know uh, with um, the recent events that with the use of um, surveillance cameras and face recognition technology, you know, the, the uh, researchers at Microsoft, I think one of them, um, one of them ended up kind of saying how horrible it is that the systems uh, discriminate. You know, people have done uh, studies, National Institute of Science and Standards and Technology, for example, have looked at um, over 280 face recognition systems that are being used 
Uh, I personally didn't know there were that many, but over 280 mm. different uh, face recognition systems being used. And the level of discrimination varies from around 10 to uh, 100, uh, over 100% uh, false uh, positive rates, uh, depending on the color of your skin, which, which is obviously uh, really bad. But, e e you know, equally, if, if you don't have that technology, you, you won't be able to use it for diagnosing cancer, uh, diagnosing liver disorders and so on. Um, you know, the, the, so you've got to somehow balance, you've got to somehow balance and take out the negatives and put constraints in to take out the negatives. Uh, again, coming back to, to the dust expert example, um, one of the key challenges we face there were, were similar. The challenges that we face now were similar there, that, that if something goes wrong, people are going to die, you know, explosions are going to happen. So how do you develop these systems in a way that, that it reduces those chances? Well, what you do is you put in uh, high integrity software quality me measures in place. So in our case, one of the challenges was that I, I wasn't an expert on on explosions or the chemical reactions that take place. So how do you get that knowledge into a system from those experts? So instead of doing that directly in, in terms of code, we developed a toolkit that enabled the experts to sit in front of a computer and encode that knowledge directly without any kind of translation taking place. And they were able to do that. And that was the, the turning point in terms of being able to develop that system and make it reliable uh, the level of integrity reach was kind of, uh, you know, probability of failure being less than 0 0.001. So kind of really high integrity kind of uh, levels, which was only achieved by thinking about the trade-off between what could go wrong and the benefits that, that accrue if you, if you get it right. And I think that's what we need to do with AI at the moment. Um, another example at the moment is that with autonomous vehicles, um, one of the challenges is make sure that people uh, can't hijack the autopilots on these systems or, or um, kind of in, intervene in a malicious way. So one example would be if you could shine certain patterns on a stop sign. Instead of being a stop sign, it, it's recognized as a, as, as a 30 sign. So researchers mm -hmm. are able to do that. So you can imagine the chaos it might cause if somebody wanted to create that chaos either by hijacking the autopilot or by manipulating um, signs that are on the roads. Um, so how do you, you know, the question is, how do you now overcome those challenges? Well, you've got to design your AI in a way that kind of uh, predicts that those, those interventions might happen and then putting in constraints that stop those happening. It's really interesting because hearing you talk, it's very clear that the involvement of experts in this case but citizens more widely in the in the in the progress around computer science and particularly ai is really important and i want to talk a little bit about the greater manchester ai foundry because that's certainly a, a central sort of methodology for developing solutions for companies tell us a bit about that project and where it is at the moment yeah so that's really good of you to ask about the ai foundry because that's really my passion at the moment the reason it's my passion is, first of all, obviously, it's, it comes back to closing the gap between theory and practice, because it's about mm -hmm. helping companies. The 
key thing for me is the, the haves and the have-nots. So again, the likes of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and some larger universities have the resources to develop these systems and develop the innovation around it. Uh, SMEs don't have that in, that opportunity or those that level of resource. So uh, the predictions are that that um, the UK, for example, is going to benefit from AI by uh, in terms of growth by six hundred and thirty billion by twenty thirty. That's pre pre wow. Pandemic figures. That's that was the projections that were there, and obviously worldwide, it's much in, into trillions uh, worldwide. But SMEs are going to be left behind. Manchester, uh, Greater Manchester SMEs in particular, might get left behind unless there is the support. So the AI Foundry is about giving that support, you know, uh, to to help them innovate, to help them create new products and services and then to, put, to uh, use those in practice and develop the businesses and hopefully hopefully, hopefully create growth uh, for the region and increase employment. So that's that's what we're trying to do. Uh, we've got, um, it's a project that's led by Manchester Metropolitan University. Uh, it includes uh, Salford uh, and includes uh, Lancaster and includes Manchester, each with their own expertise. Um, so we, we started uh, in 20... A couple of years ago now, almost a couple of years ago, uh, by uh, next, by end of October would be two years. So the idea is to recruit companies, SMEs, uh, in Greater Manchester. Uh, first of all, uh, get them to think about the innovation. You know, what, what is it they want to try out? What sort of ideas? And then to introduce them to some of the AI technologies that are available. And then and that's in phase one. So we have uh, workshops to do that, some workshops of which you kindly contribute to on, Andy. Uh, those workshops really uh, in include the business, our business schools. That's uh, Richard Drone, uh, Amberine Khan, and Solmas Rohani, who provide the uh, guidance on innovation and business. So what, one, of the, one of the key things there is that SMEs, and in, in general, many companies, um, if they're driven too much by the technology, don't think about the kind of issues we were talking about earlier, mm. you know, the ethical issues. They don't think about whether there is a gap in the market and whether they can, they can exploit the market. So our business school uh, colleagues have been great at uh, giving them that, that background and then to think about uh, how they go about innovation and the difference it would make uh, commercially to them in creating a business plan. And then the, the, the staff in science, engineering and environment in, in computer science in particular uh, come in and talk about the AI technology uh, and then lead them to understand the uh, options available. And that's phase one. Uh, at the moment, we've had 25 companies that have been through phase one and they've all kind of enjoyed the talks. Uh, and then in phase two, we have uh, some uh, data scientists and AI specialists who will provide them support for developing their products and services. The great thing about the universities is it allows us to um, put forward our top experts. So, Andy, you give a talk on ethics. We have people uh, like Terence Fernando who talks about the use of uh, digital in transforming uh, disaster recovery methods. Uh, we have uh, Chris Hughes talks about um, his work with the BBC on captioning. And then you've got uh, people like 
uh, people like Mosseri, uh, uh, who's our lead for the MSc in data science, talks about the course and the support the students could offer. Um, so it's it's a wonderful opportunity to display the expertise we have in the university. You know, uh, bring forward our students, engage them in projects, and then hopefully in the future increase the number of knowledge transfer partnerships. So we benefit significantly, but the companies hopefully will benefit significantly and then the region will benefit going forward. I mean, certainly hearing you speak, Sunil, it's, it's very clear that values drives a lot of what you do as a researcher, but also the research that Salford does in working with both communities, but also in the industry sector. And whether it's trying to minimise the chance of explosions or whether it's trying to empower companies to take more ownership of the innovation around them. These are really about enabling people to take better control of their of their sector, but also to make sure that people feel part of the process. Because I think the, I think in some respects, the, the, the recent history of computer science and particularly those big companies that you mentioned is that they are so powerful and it's so perhaps easy for companies to simply rely on their platform to develop their own service, that it's it's really a, a bigger challenge to then reclaim that space. Yeah, no, I'm, again, I'm really influenced by my early days at Salford. You know, I, I recall um, I was recruited, for, uh, as soon as I graduated, I was recruited as an, as an RA to support um, develop of a contouring package, uh, package for lost off research labs to look at the number of plankton in, number of plankton in, in, in the sea and its effect on the environment was that. So that was an interesting project. But as, as, a, as, as an aside to that, um, um, by chance, uh, the, the, the colleague who recruited me, a guy called Leslie Fletcher, who later became the head of mathematics, uh, took me to Booth Hall Children's Hospital and they had a, a they had a problem with um, uh, dietitians sitting there just entering numbers in from um, from a, a book called McCann, uh, by McCanson Widdersons that looked at the nutrition content of each food item, and she would spend days and days just entering this information, getting one of the numbers wrong. Um, so we're going back kind of uh, to the pre-80s, I guess, or just late mid mid 80s, I guess. Um, and we took a look at this and said, what are you doing? You know, why is, why are you spending so much time? So we went back and we we contacted, uh, Leslie Fletcher contacted uh, the book authors uh, and they sent us some paper tape. Um, and lo and behold, we were able within a, a month to give them a, a, a kind of basic system that would do this for them. And the great thing was that that from that simple kind of, wish to help them and support them, we suddenly had uh, around 25 uh, hosp hospitals wanted to use the system, had a workshop around it. And before we knew it, it, it they took hold of it. It was like wildfire. Uh, <laughs> and kind of later on, uh, Leslie Fletcher and the lady called Sally Basson were able to get a EU grant, a European grant on the back of that, uh, how, to, how to make sure that children who, who, who have... Um, some issues with diets can optimize their diets and remain healthy mm. and then from the back of that there was a company that was launched and that company is still alive and a couple, a couple of years ago i was at manchester met at a seminar and a, uh, somebody approached me and says you know that's that system is still running and that company is still alive but the i hadn't realized that there were thousands of users nowadays 
of that system that was developed. Uh, it wasn't, the, the, I should emphasize the, the version that I was involved in developing got upgraded many, many times over uh, in different languages. But, but today it's in the thousands of hospitals. It's exactly that point you make. It wasn't kind of led completely by the university. It was the community that was, it was a seed. It was a seed that was planted and that seed just took off with the community engaging and developing by seeing its value to them. And it's so fascinating and inspiring to hear about the impact that the research can make and especially to hear just how collaborative it is to work with social scientists, people in the business school. I think in some respects that Salford does very well at, at making space for collaborative research and uh, it's great to hear those stories across your career. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we've covered such a great breadth of your work and i really look forward to seeing the the outputs from the greater manchester ai foundry project so thank you sunil for joining me and i look forward to seeing you again soon thank you, thank you andy thank you for inviting me it's been a, a real pleasure to share some of my thoughts take care sunil bye-bye take care everyone bye Well, that was Professor Sunil Vadero, one of our longest serving researchers in computer science, telling the story of how it all began and how far we've come in, in bringing us closer to a world of artificial intelligence. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. My name is Professor Andy Meir and I direct the science communication space. And you'll be hearing a lot more across the academic gear from a range of our researchers across the university. So stay tuned. <laughs>